0: December 26th, 1985. Fayetteville, North Carolina. 28 year old nurse Debbie Wolf leaves her shift at the hospital but does not show up for work the following morning. When Debbie's mother checks her cabin, she discovers that Debbie is missing. Six days later, one of Debbie's friends finds her at the bottom of a nearby pond, but even though he claims her body was inside a barrel, the police rule that Debbie drowned accidentally and that the barrel never existed. While suspicion surrounds two of Debbie's co-workers, her death continues to remain unsolved. After that, the trail went cold. Hey, Deb, I missed you here at work today. Uh, just wondered how you're doing. Uh, if you're able to give me a call up here at the ward, I'm at or I'll give me a call at home tonight. Uh, you've been out a lot of days. maybe worry worried when you miss another one. I just want to make sure you're okay. Bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of The Trail When Cold. I'm your host Robin Warder, and today we're going to be exploring a very bizarre case which was featured on Unsolved Mysteries, the unexplained 1985 death of Debbie Wolfe. That sound clip you just heard was an actual message left on Debbie's answering machine by one of her co-workers, who seemed to be expressing concern about her missing several days of work, even though she had technically only been missing for a couple of hours at that point. Throughout the month of December. Our podcast is going to be covering mysteries which took place around Christmas time. This particular case happened to take place on December 26th, as our victim celebrated Christmas with her family the previous day, showed up to work her shift as a nurse, and then disappeared after she left. Debbie's body would be discovered at the bottom of a pond on New Year's Day, but there would be a lot of controversy surrounding her death. The diver who found her body insisted that it was stuffed inside a barrel which would lend credence to her being murdered, but the local sheriff's department would make the bizarre claim that Debbie's death was an accident and that there was no barrel to begin with. So I'm going to say this up front. This episode features what is probably one of the worst police investigations I've ever seen. There does seem to be a lot of compelling evidence to suggest that Debbie was a victim of foul play, but to this day, her cause of death is still officially considered to be undetermined. Anyway, before we get started, just a quick reminder that The Trail Went Cold is a weekly podcast which is currently available for download on several platforms, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and Spotify. So if you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe to it, and please leave us a rating or review on any of those sites to help spread the word and garner us more exposure. The Trail Went Cold is on Patreon, so if you would like to learn how to support the show, Please visit our page at patreon.com/thetrailwindcold. For as little as $1 a month, you can garner access to exclusive rewards, which may include stickers and thank you cards, early access to episodes, and bonus content. So, with all that out of the way, let us now explore the unexplained death of Debbie Wolf. Our story begins in Fayetteville, North Carolina in 1985. Our central figure is 28-year-old Debbie Wolf, who works as a nurse at the Veterans Administration Medical Center and lives with her two dogs in a remote isolated cabin in the woods located four miles outside the city and about 100 yards from the main road. Debbie currently has a boyfriend, while they do not live together yet, they have recently had discussions about taking their relationship to the next level. She is also very close to her mother, Jenny Edwards, and has three brothers, though her oldest sibling died three years earlier at the age of 27. Debbie enjoyed spending Christmas Day with her family, and as a joke, decided to give her mother male and female adult novelty dolls as a gift while Jenny gave her a stuffed unicorn. On December 26th, Debbie showed up to work her shift at the hospital and left at 4 p.m., but unfortunately, This would turn out to be the last time she was confirmed to be alive. The following morning, Debbie failed to show up for her shift at 8 a.m. and did not call in, which was very uncharacteristic of her. When the hospital tried to phone Debbie at her cabin, there was no answer. Later that day, when Jenny learned that Debbie didn't show up for work, she decided to travel to the cabin to check on her alongside Debbie's stepfather, John Edwards, and a family friend named Kevin Gorton. When they arrived, they saw that Debbie's car was still outside, but it was parked in a completely different spot than she normally parked in. The driver's seat in the car was pushed all the way back, which was not the position Debbie placed it whenever she drove the vehicle. Even though Debbie was a very neat and tidy person, empty beer cans were scattered outside the cabin, and they were for a brand she wasn't known to drink. And while Debbie always took good care of her dogs, it was apparent that they had not been fed in a while. When Jenny, John, and Kevin walked inside the cabin, they were surprised to discover Debbie's nursing uniform lying on the floor in the kitchen, which was also very uncharacteristic of her. In addition, Debbie's purse was shoved under her bed, which was not the place she ordinarily kept it. However, the strangest oddity was a message on Debbie's answering machine, which had been left by one of the male volunteers who worked at her hospital. You heard the audio for it during the intro, but during the message, the caller expressed concern about Debbie not being at work that day and wanted to make sure she was okay, so he asked her to call him. The part which raised a few eyebrows was when he said, quote, you've been out a lot of days, you made me worried when you missed another one. This seemed to imply that Debbie had missed several days of work, but by this point, she had only been missing a couple of hours. Jenny contacted the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department but was told that Debbie had to be missing for at least 72 hours before they could file a report. In spite of this, it would be five days before they finally launched a search effort for Debbie, as they checked all over her property, but there was no trace of Debbie or any evidence to suggest what had happened to her. A small pond was located 50 feet from the cabin, and the water was about five and a half feet deep, so Jenny asked the police if they were going to search it. By that point, they told her it was too late in the day to do so, but would let her know the following day. Jenny then asked if it was okay if she had her own diver search the pond, and the police said it was fine. So on New Year's Day of 1986, Kevin Gordon and another friend of the family named Gordon Childress showed up at the pond. Both men had experience performing search and rescue work, and Gordon Childress was a scuba diver who also happened to be an army paratrooper at Fort Bragg. Gordon dove underwater, and within two minutes, he surfaced and told Kevin he had found two sets of footprints and some drag marks in the thick mud at the bottom of the pond. Gordon immediately went back underwater, and about 30 feet from the shore, he bumped into what appeared to be a human foot. After resurfacing again to inform Kevin that he believed he had found a body, Gordon went back down and came across what he described as a rusty, metal, 55-gallon burn barrel which had holes on the side. It was apparent that a body was inside the barrel so the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department were contacted. When they arrived at the scene, the body was removed from the pond and conclusively identified as Debbie Wolfe. Surprisingly, Debbie's body was not bloated or waterlogged and in such unexpectedly good condition that they were able to give her an open casket funeral. After an autopsy was performed the following day, the cause of death was determined to be drowning, but the coroner could not determine the exact time of death. There were no drugs or alcohol found in Debbie's system, but there were not even any noticeable signs of foul play either, so the official ruling for her death was undetermined. Well, Captain Jack Watts of the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department would present his own theory about what happened. He believed that Debbie may have been playing outside with her two dogs when one of them walked into the pond. When she went in after it, Debbie accidentally fell over, or if there had been ice on the pond on that particular day, it gave way beneath her, and she wound up drowning in the water. It was proposed that Debbie might have succumbed to immersion syndrome, which is when sudden cardiac arrest is caused by a prolonged exposure to damp, cold temperatures. Needless to say, Debbie's family and friends did not agree with this theory, as she was known to be an excellent swimmer who never went into that pond during the winter months. When she was found, Debbie's eyes and mouth were closed, and her body appeared to be in a relaxed state. If she had fallen into the pond and drowned, Her eyes and mouth likely would have been open, and her arms and hands stretched out from flailing around in the water as she fought for her life. The autopsy found only half a teaspoon's worth of water in Debbie's upper bronchial area, and there was none of the white froth or foam like substance one would expect to find in the mouth or airways of a drowning victim. This seemed to indicate that Debbie was already dead or unconscious before she went into the water. She also had multiple abrasions on several of her fingers, which may have been defensive wounds. One thing which struck Kevin Gorton and Gordon Childress as particularly weird was how clean Debbie's body seemed to be, considering that the water in the pond was quite dirty and she had supposedly been submerged for nearly a week. Even though Gordon had only been in the water for about 20 minutes while searching for her, he claimed that it took him three days to wash all the slit and mud out of his dive suit. But of course, the biggest piece of evidence which seemed to go against the idea of an accidental drowning was the fact that Debbie's body was found inside a barrel. But believe it or not, Captain Watts had an explanation for this. The barrel never even existed to begin with. He claimed that two to three feet of water was drained from the pond in the days after Debbie was discovered, but no barrel was found. Since the water in the pond was very murky, Watts suspected that the so-called barrel was actually an army field jacket Debbie had been wearing, which ballooned out into the water when he drowned. When seen from a certain angle, Gordon could have mistaken the jacket for a barrel. Not surprisingly, Gordon discounted this. It was absolutely positive he saw a barrel in the water. In fact, one of the deputies from the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department would corroborate seeing a barrel at the scene that day. Debbie did own a rusted burn barrel which she kept on the property to use as target practice, but it conspicuously went missing after her death and Jenny Edwards noticed an indentation from the spot in the ground where the barrel normally rested. Since Gordon remembered seeing what appeared to be bullet holes on the side of the barrel underwater, this seemed to support the idea that it was the same burn barrel. According to Jenny, after Debbie's body was taken away, she overheard police divers at the scene discuss how they were planning to retrieve the barrel from the pond. Jenny went inside the cabin, but by the time she left, everyone was leaving. One of her friends then told her that the police were planning to leave the barrel underwater overnight and would retrieve it in the morning. Jenny theorized that when they showed up the following day, the barrel had disappeared, possibly because it was retrieved by the person responsible for Debbie's death. The sheriff's department then decided to pretend the barrel never existed in order to cover up the fact that they irresponsibly lost a key piece of evidence. However, Jenny would also discover a number of other strange discrepancies to cause her to suspect foul play. Two months after Debbie's death, Jenny received the clothing her daughter had been wearing at the time her body was found, and immediately became convinced that it did not actually belong to her. For starters, the bra was too large, as Debbie ordinarily wore a 34B, but the bra Jenny received was the 38C. Debbie was wearing a black t-shirt for the Pittsburgh Steelers football team Even though no one remembered her owning a shirt like that, and the brown corduroy pants she had on were too long. I mentioned earlier that Debbie was found in an army field jacket, which Captain Watts believed was mistaken for the barrel, but even though Debbie had borrowed a field jacket from her brother, it was found hanging in her closet. This field jacket had no name tag, appeared to be brand new, and there was no mud or debris in the pocket, even though it had supposedly been under water for six days. Debbie also wore a women's size 7 shoe, but the white tennis shoes Jenny received were a men's size 6, and once again, surprisingly clean, even though police believe she walked into the muddy pond on her own. Alongside the clothing was a handmade Indian necklace with glass beads and a small pouch containing a symbol known as the Evil Eye, which enables the spirit to see its way into the next life. Once again, Jenny did not recall Debbie ever having owned such an item. There was also an odd discrepancy with the nurse's uniform found on the kitchen floor. During her final shift, one of Debbie's co-workers had lunch with her and claimed that Debbie accidentally spilled some coffee on her sleeve, but no stains were found on the uniform. The co-worker also remembered Debbie wearing a long-sleeved uniform that day, but the uniform in the kitchen was a short-sleeved one, which would ordinarily be worn in warmer summer weather. Lab tests would show that this uniform had been freshly washed, it was not recently worn, creating speculation that it did not actually belong to Debbie and her real uniform was missing. Sometime after Debbie was found, a family friend visited the cabin to feed her dogs and found her wool stocking cap in some mud on the opposite side of the pond where she was believed to have entered the water. By this point, there was a thin layer of ice on the pond, so it seemed unlikely the cap could have floated there if it had been in the water. In Jenny's eyes, if Debbie was murdered, there were two promising male suspects, both of whom were volunteers at the hospital. One of Debbie's responsibilities was coordinating the volunteers, and two of them seemed to have a potential motive to harm her. One had a history of psychiatric illnesses and often harassed Debbie. He was able to obtain her home phone number and called her, telling Debbie that he knew where she lived and would come visit her. This man was questioned by police While he refused to take a polygraph test, he did apparently have an alibi for the time period Debbie went missing. No evidence could be found to implicate him, though he did leave the state only a few days after he was questioned. The second male volunteer had showed a romantic interest in Debbie and asked her out, but since she had a boyfriend, she made it clear that she was not interested in getting involved with this man, though she was willing to be friends. The most suspicious thing about this volunteer is that he was the one who left the odd message on Debbie's answering machine, asking why she had missed several days of work. He was questioned by police, but they never found any evidence against him either. Jenny continuously lobbied to get Debbie's death reclassified as a homicide, and a new sheriff was eventually elected to Cumberland County, who ordered the investigation to be reopened. The case was profiled on Unsolved Mysteries in December of 1990, though sadly... It failed to turn up any substantial new leads. Jenny Edwards died in 2002, and Debbie's father and her two remaining brothers have also since passed away. Today, Debbie's story is one of several cold cases profiled at the personal website of Dr. Maurice Godwin, a former North Carolina police officer who now works as a criminal investigative psychologist. When Dr. Godwin took a fresh look at the case files, he uncovered information which suggested to him that semen had been found in Debbie's body, though this was ignored at the time. While efforts have been made to perform new DNA testing on the evidence, it does not look like this has ever come to fruition, and Debbie Wolf's death continues to remain unsolved. So I guess you could say, the trail went cold. Now, it's no secret that I've covered my fair share of cold cases on the podcast where law enforcement completely botched the investigation, but this is a whole other level because it pretty much insults the intelligence of the victim's loved ones. In other cases where the police unjustly labeled someone's death as suicide or an accident, I could at least try to look at the situation from their perspective and figure out how they might have reached their conclusion. But here, their actions defy all logic. We have multiple witnesses, one of whom was even a deputy with the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department, who were absolutely certain that they saw a barrel at the bottom of the pond, yet when the barrel seemed to go missing, the department suddenly decided to pretend the barrel never existed in the first place. That doesn't necessarily mean they orchestrated a cover-up to protect Debbie's killer. They may have only done this because they realized they made a tremendous error in judgment by deciding to leave the barrel at the bottom of the pond to retrieve the following day, so they wanted to avoid admitting that they screwed up in a huge way. If the perpetrator learned that Debbie's body had been found, they might have decided to return to the property that night, and when they discovered the barrel was still there, they got rid of it. While allowing this to happen was a colossal mistake on the part of the police, it's still less egregious than trying to pretend there was no barrel. Captain Watts' explanation that Gordon Childress saw Debbie's field jacket ballooned up in the water and mistook it for a barrel makes no sense, as they were not even remotely similar. I'm willing to acknowledge that the water was murky, and visibility was not good down there, but it's just too much of a coincidence that Gordon specifically mentioned seeing holes in the barrel, and a burn barrel on Debbie's property containing bullet holes went missing without explanation. This whole situation might not have even become an issue in the first place if the police had sent their own divers to search the pond right from the outset, so Jenny Edwards wouldn't have needed to ask her friends to do it. Gordon Childress may not have been a police officer, but he was an army paratrooper and an experienced scuba diver, so I think I would trust his judgment if he said he saw Debbie's body inside a barrel. The thing about discounting the barrel theory is, how else could they explain her body being at the bottom of the pond 30 feet away from shore? It does seem unlikely that a grown woman could accidentally drown in a pond which was only five and a half feet deep. I know they proposed the idea that she became a victim of immersion syndrome after the cold water caused a sudden cardiac arrest. This is theoretically possible, but come on, we're talking about a small pond in North Carolina in December, not the Southern Ocean in Antarctica. Even if Debbie somehow slipped or passed out, and her body floated to the middle of the pond, I just don't see how it would have stayed at the bottom without being weighted down. Her body was not visible when they searched the property on previous occasions, so if Debbie had been dead in the water for nearly a week, shouldn't her body have floated to the surface? I just don't think she could have stayed out of sight unless she was inside a barrel the entire time. If you remember the podcast episode I did back in October about the death of Chris Jenkins, you might have noticed some similarities with Debbie's case as the bodies of both victims were found in a relaxed position, which seemed to go against the idea that they had accidentally fallen into the water and fought for their lives before they drowned. Since only a small amount of water was found inside Debbie's upper bronchial area, it seems apparent that she was already dead before she was placed in the pond, and the abrasions on her fingers are an indication that she may have attempted to fight off an attacker at some point. Given the surprising lack of mud and slit on Debbie's body, I think she was probably stuffed inside the barrel before she even entered the water, and the footprints and drag marks on the bottom of the pond support the idea of someone dragging the barrel to the spot it was found before leaving it there. However, while it's easy to piece together a scenario of Debbie's killer disposing of her body, the most puzzling aspect of this case is trying to figure out the exact circumstances of how she was killed because there are a lot of pieces which don't quite fit together. So let's start at the beginning. The last time Debbie was confirmed to be alive was when she left work at 4pm on December 26th, and since she didn't show up for her shift the following morning, it's obvious that something happened to her during that window of time. And given that she lived in a remote, isolated cabin in the woods, a lot of things could have occurred there without anybody else seeing or hearing anything. The scenario the police would like you to believe is that Debbie arrived home, removed her nurse's uniform and left it on the kitchen floor, changed clothes, stuffed her purse under her bed for no apparent reason, went outside to drink some beers, and tossed the cans on the ground, even though she was known for being a neat and meticulous person. She then started playing with her dogs and went to the pond, which somehow led to her falling in and drowning. When you piece all the evidence together... The police's version really doesn't make much sense. It seems clear that someone attacked Debbie sometime after her shift ended. There are many different possibilities. They could have attacked her in the hospital parking lot and abducted her in her own car, they could have followed her home and attacked her when she arrived, or they may have already been lying in wait for Debbie at the cabin to attack her when she got home. I know the beer cans found outside were apparently for a brand Debbie did not drink. If true, it seems unlikely the beer came from her refrigerator, so someone else brought it there. Perhaps Debbie's killer was drinking it while waiting for her to come home, or maybe they paid her a visit and brought the beer because they were under the mistaken impression that Debbie would want to hang out, but things escalated into violence. Given that Debbie's car was parked in a different spot than usual, and the driver's seat was pushed back, it's easy to assume that someone bigger than Debbie was driving the vehicle perhaps to abduct her from the scene. Since the coroner was unable to determine Debbie's exact time of death, it's still uncertain at which point she was actually killed during the six-day period she was missing. When Jenny first arrived at the cabin to check on Debbie on December 27th, it's possible that Debbie was already inside the barrel at the bottom of the pond at that point, but she may have also still been alive and was being held captive at another location. Now, one crucial detail which has never been made completely clear is whether there were any signs that Debbie was sexually assaulted. I know that Dr. Maurice Godwin looked through the case file and found information which seemed to indicate that semen was found inside Debbie's body, but since the Sheriff's Department wrote off her death as an accident, I'm sure this wasn't explored further at the time. I know efforts have been made to perform DNA testing on this evidence, though it doesn't look like this has ever gone anywhere. If the perpetrator was someone who knew Debbie and had an interest in her, then sexual assault may have been the primary motive for the crime. However, I do not write off the possibility that Debbie could have been abducted before she even made it home and was killed in another location, and the perpetrator subsequently drove her car to the cabin with Debbie's body inside. They staged the scene to make it look like Debbie had arrived home before stuffing her body in the nearby burn barrel and dragging it to the bottom of the pond. One of the most curious details of the scene inside the cabin was the nurse's uniform in the kitchen, which may not have even belonged to Debbie. As you recall, one of her co-workers claimed that Debbie spilled coffee on her sleeve during her final shift, but no stains were found on that particular uniform. Since the uniform was freshly washed, I guess you could assume that Debbie washed it herself after she got home because of the stain, but why would she then leave it crumpled up on the kitchen floor? Since the uniform was a short-sleeved one, it clearly wasn't the same one Debbie had worn. If Debbie had been violently attacked, her original uniform could have been torn or wrecked or contained evidence which pointed to foul play, which is why the perpetrator got rid of it. They then got a replacement uniform to plant in the cabin in order to give off the impression that Debbie arrived home, took it off, and changed clothes. Now, as we're going to discuss in a little while... The two most promising suspects in Debbie's death were volunteers at her hospital, and I think that's a crucial detail. It's not like just anybody would have a spare nursing uniform on hand, but if one worked inside a hospital, there would be ample opportunity to steal one. What's even more baffling is that Debbie was found wearing clothing which did not even appear to belong to her. I considered the possibility that the clothing was Debbie's, and her mother simply didn't recognize it, since I don't know how many parents are going to be familiar with their adult child's entire wardrobe. But I can't overlook the fact that her shoes and bra were too big for her, and that she was wearing an army field jacket, even though she had borrowed another one from her brother, which was still inside her closet. I'd also really be curious to know if Debbie was a fan of the Pittsburgh Steelers, or even watched football at all. Because if she wasn't, what reason would she have to be wearing a Steelers shirt? Part of me wondered if perhaps this was just a simple mix-up, and the authorities provided Jenny with clothing which actually belonged to another deceased woman, but I get the impression that Jenny and several other witnesses were present when Debbie's body was removed from the pond, and would have noticed if she had on completely different clothing at that time. The thing I don't understand is, if Debbie's killer dressed her up in that clothing, what were they trying to accomplish? It seems they were trying to give off the impression that Debbie arrived home, changed clothing, and then later died in an accident after falling into the pond. But if that was the intention, why not dress up Debbie in her own clothing from the cabin? Most importantly, if they wanted to make everyone believe that Debbie's death was an accidental drowning, why would they place her body inside a barrel? That type of thing just cannot be written off as an accident, and it sounds like the killer got incredibly lucky that the sheriff's department decided to take the attitude that there was no barrel to begin with. While I lean towards the police doing this merely to cover up their own incompetence, rather than cover for the killer, sometimes I do wonder if it's the opposite. If, for whatever reason, someone from the sheriff's department wanted to protect the killer, they could have intentionally left the barrel at the bottom of the pond under the pretense of coming back to collect it the following day, which would have given the perpetrator ample time to sneak back onto the property and retrieve the barrel that night. Without that piece of evidence, it would be easier to push forward the cover story that Debbie drowned accidentally. Since we know very little about the backgrounds of the potential suspects, I have no idea why the Sheriff's Department would want to cover up a murder for them, but stranger things have happened. One thing which is particularly frustrating to me is that if the police had treated Debbie's death as a homicide right from the outset, that clothing could have potentially been a useful piece of evidence for tracking down the perpetrator and building a case against them. For instance, it's reasonable to assume that the killer was a male, and if the bra Debbie was wearing did not actually belong to her, where did the killer get it? If he wasn't living with a female at the time, then the killer would have either had to steal it or purchase it from somewhere. So the authorities could have conceivably put out a public notice about Debbie's items of clothing, asking anyone to come forward if they recently had clothing like that stolen from them, or remembered seeing any suspicious men purchasing it. There's also that handmade Indian necklace which had glass beads and a pouch with the evil eye symbol. Jenny did not recall Debbie ever owning such an item, but it's pretty distinctive. It could have potentially been traced back to the killer if they looked into that lead. So now we have to talk about who the killer might have been. One curious thing about this story is that even though Debbie had a boyfriend at the time, there's very little information out there about him, only that his name was Steve McDonald, and that he was a former agent with the Army's Criminal Investigation Division. He also confirmed that he did not give the Army field jacket Debbie was wearing to her, and had never seen it before. While the two of them had discussed taking their relationship to the next level shortly before Debbie was killed, I see no indication that Steve was ever considered a suspect, but I could see how the relationship might have motivated someone else to murder Debbie. Her family believed that the two potential suspects who should have been explored were volunteers from her hospital, but neither of these men have ever been publicly named, and very little is known about them, aside from the fact that they both had an interest in Debbie. One of them exhibited creepy, stalkerish behavior, phoning Debbie up at home, and telling her he knew where she lived, and would come see her. He also left the state a very short time after he was questioned, and really seems like a promising suspect on the surface, but in his defense, he did seem to have an alibi. I guess my issue with that is that we don't know the exact time Debbie was killed, and she was technically missing for six days, so I'm not sure how much an alibi would clear him, but if his whereabouts were completely accounted for, from between when Debbie's shift ended at 4 p.m. on December 26th and when Jenny visited her cabin on December 27th, then that would be a pretty good indication this man probably wasn't involved. The second suspect had a romantic interest in Debbie, but from what I gathered, he was a lot more cordial when she turned him down and didn't display any creepy behavior. But what really diverts suspicion towards him is the message he left on Debbie's answering machine on December 27th where he expressed concern over the fact that Debbie had missed a lot of days of work, even though she had only missed one shift by that point. Now, I did consider the possibility that some of his words may have been taken out of context. Here is what he actually says, quote, You missed a lot of days. I'd hate for you to miss another one. End quote. When he said, you've missed a lot of days, what if the caller was referring to shifts Debbie had missed on a previous occasion prior to Christmas, and I'd hate for you to miss another one, is referring to the shift she didn't show up for on the 27th. If Debbie had actually missed a lot of days in the past, possibly due to illness or something, then this provides an innocent explanation for the call, which makes this guy sound far less suspicious. But it would all depend on Debbie's attendance record. She was known for being a very reliable employee who almost never missed work, so if she had zero history of missing days prior to the 27th, then this theory is completely irrelevant. So if this coworker was responsible for Debbie's death, it comes across like he's leaving the message in order to fabricate some sort of alibi for himself and come across as an innocent concerned friend who's checking up on Debbie after she has failed to show up for several shifts. If that's the case, he probably figured that no one would actually listen to the message until after Debbie had been missing for days, and because he had feigned concern for her, he would be the last person anyone suspected. But the problem is that Jenny went to the cabin and listened to the message only hours after Debbie went missing, so the context of his phone call didn't make any sense at that point. It does seem like a pretty logical plan, because even if his message wasn't heard for several days, phone records would still verify that the call took place on the morning of the 27th. But then again, this is the pre cell phone era of 1985, so I'm not sure if he would have been thinking about phone records at that point. Whatever the case, when the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department interviewed this man, they said there was no evidence to implicate him in Debbie's death, which may be true, but what troubles me about the department's investigation into both of these suspects from the hospital is that they had pretty much already committed themselves to the accidental death story. If they uncovered any evidence which implicated either of these men, then they'd have to admit they were wrong and made a colossal mistake, and I'm not so sure they were willing to do that so I do have to wonder just how thoroughly either of these suspects were investigated. While one of them apparently did have an alibi, I'm not entirely sure if the whereabouts of the man who left the message were accounted for between the evening of December 26th and the morning of the 27th. If I had to make a guess, I'd say that the caller is the most likely suspect, and even if he did not exhibit any troubling behavior beforehand, finding out that Debbie had a boyfriend and had no romantic interest in him Could have caused him to snap. Since we're not even entirely certain how Debbie died, it's possible that the perpetrator didn't initially plan on killing Debbie, but things escalated into violence when she kept rejecting him. Wherever her murder took place, I have a feeling she was wearing her nurse's uniform at the time, which is why it's never been found. After Debbie was dead, she was dressed in different clothing and had her body placed inside the burn barrel before it was dragged to the center of the pond. Like I mentioned earlier, if the nurse's uniform found in the kitchen did not actually belong to Debbie, then it had to come from somewhere, which is why I think that someone who worked at her hospital stole it from there. If someone would go to that much trouble to stage a scene at the cabin, then I certainly believe they would leave a fake message on her answering machine to cover their tracks. All things considered, this case should have been very solvable, but unfortunately, The nonsense with the barrel ensured that the sheriff's department had no interest in conducting a proper investigation. Sadly, after nearly 33 years, every single person in Debbie's immediate family is dead. This must have been an awful time for Jenny Edwards, as she lost her oldest son three years before Debbie, and Debbie's two other brothers were only 55 when they both died. So there was a lot of tragedy in that family and it seems like the only person who is still seeking justice for Debbie after all this time might be Dr. Maurice Godwin. At this point, I'm not even sure if Debbie's killer is still alive, but if DNA evidence exists, the past year has shown us on numerous occasions that DNA can link a suspect to a crime, even if they're already deceased. So if you happen to have any information about the unsolved death of Debbie Wolfe, please contact the appropriate authorities. I announced last week that our last episode of the year is scheduled to take place on Wednesday, December 26th, and I'm going to be closing off the year with a special Q&A episode where I will be answering questions you send in about myself or the podcast. We're still taking submissions, so if you would like to send in a question, please email it to me under the subject line, Trail Went Cold Q&A, to robin.warder at iCloud.com. That's robin.warder at iCloud.com and the subject line is Trail Went Cold Q&A. Another reminder that The Trail Went Cold is on Patreon, so feel free to visit patreon.com went cold to learn how you can support our podcast and become eligible for some pretty neat rewards. We've already released some exclusive bonus episodes for our patrons in tiers 2 and 3, and our most recent bonus episode covers another famous Unsolved Mysteries case about the death of Kay Hall and the controversial murder conviction of her husband. So to learn more information, feel free to visit our Patreon page. I'd also like to give a shout-out to our most recent listeners who have signed up with us on Patreon this week, and they are James S., Cheryl, Ian S., Lauren H., Holly E. B., Laura S., and Derek A. Thank you all so much for your support. Anyway, before we close things out, I'd like to play a promo for a new long-form podcast called Don't Talk to Strangers, It's hosted by Nina Instead of the Already Gone podcast, who, incidentally, released her own episode about the Debbie Wolf case last year. Anyway, have a listen. From January 1st, 1976, through the end of March, 1977, the metro Detroit area was the site of nine child murders. Three of those cases are resolved, but the other six cases remain open with most of these deaths attributed to the as-yet-unidentified Oakland County child killer. Don't Talk to Strangers is a long-form podcast focused on this series of unresolved child murders. Join us as we explore the stories of these young victims, the impact on their families and the community, and what happened to the investigation into these crimes. Subscribe to Don't Talk to Strangers on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher. I also just wanted to give another shout-out to my supporters at the Unsolved Mysteries message board at the Sitcoms Online Forum and the Unresolved Mysteries subreddit. need to provide a big thanks to Miguel Foote, who edits and assembles this podcast together for me, and Vince Nitro, who composes the eerie music you hear on every episode. If you haven't already, you can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter... Leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play Music. So have yourself a good week and join me next Wednesday for a brand new Christmas themed episode of The Trail Went Cold. <laughs>